I, uh, uh, due to my, um, I suppose, uh, position and uh, interest by, by uh, profession, I've been following the intrigue surrounding the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI. And I have been keeping up with uh, what is going on in the Vatican for about two or three years. And my own view is that this resignation by the Pope was due to his own disillusionment over the meanness, if you will, of the internal politics of the Vatican. Benedict simply uh, could not, due to his own infirmities, cope with the divisions and the divisiveness of his own house. There have been four papal resignations before Benedict's resignation. Two were due to scandals. Uh, One was due to the fact that after five months, one of the medieval popes recognized that he was not up to the task at all. And then um, one was due to heal the great schism, uh, I believe, in the 14th century. And uh, so this last resignation is the fifth one. What is obvious about the present situation in the Vatican is that trust has broken down. Now, this happens at times in most every situation, whether secular or ecclesiastical, uh, when um, there is, if you will, politics, an intrigue introduced into a situation. And uh, that is life, though, isn't it? Someone says to me, it seems like, Pastor, everything is political today. Everything has always been political. That's the way the world works. And it makes little difference if it's an ecclesiastical situation or whether uh, it is a secular situation. And one of the problems, of course, is that we are, are uh, unable at times to trust each other and sometimes we overtrust. So I want to speak about trust and where and how it is to be placed. Jeremiah the prophet, who knew something about plots and intrigue, who knew something about betrayal and the breakdown of trust, speaks of this in chapter 17, in particular uh, verses 5 through 10. Now, in Jeremiah's lifetime, he was accused of treason by his own people and the authorities that be. He was constantly persecuted. Once he was placed in stocks. Another time he was thrown in a pit. He was placed under house arrest. And when he once decided to to go back to his little village not far from Jerusalem to put some affairs in order, he was arrested again. And eventually he was taken to Egypt. And I do not believe by his own free will And there we hear no more from him. He may have lived out his natural life. But during his time, when 
the kingdom of Judah was about to fall. The Assyrians were falling and the Babylonians were rising in power. All kinds of political intrigue uh, was afoot. And Jeremiah was a part of that world in that way some 25 to 2600 years ago. We come to this very important passage. You should remember these aspects of the prophet's life as you hear the prophet's words. And the first point I want to make uh, concerns the human condition and the human heart. As you know, fundamental Christian teaching is that we live in a world that is fallen, but most of us at times lose sight of that. Moreover, we lose sight of the extent of the fall. We think it only extends, well, to the secular world. But no, it, it can be found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Because people are people and have their self-interests. And it is rare for us to be able to rise above our self-interests and uh, to be able to see things the way they are. And so the first point I want to make concerns the human condition and the human heart. Listen, listen to chapter 17 and what the prophet says. I did not read or verse one was not read to you, but I want to read verse one. And it says in chapter 17, this in verse one, it demonstrates how far Judah was in her distance from God in her estrangement. And the prophet says, quote, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a fine point on the tables of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. And then part of the text is verse nine. And the prophet says, and these words are often quoted, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? What you should notice about these verses is simply this, that the human heart and the human condition is extraordinarily unstable, moreover sinful or bent toward self-interest as St. Augustine would put it. We are curved inwardly to serve our self-interest in a way that puts others at a disadvantage. Now, I have no problem with self-interest per se. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He indeed uh, supposes that you will love yourself and you will have your interest in mind, but it will not be at the expense of your neighbor whom also you are to love. This is demonstrated then in the deceitfulness of the human heart. First, in our abilities to deceive others and even, if you will, more deeply sinful to deceive ourselves. Uh, we live in a world where we have an inability to anticipate, if you will, uh, many events that will be harmful or whatever because of self-deception. Now, I want to give you two examples. Uh, what I'm preaching from, you could get from the text yourself. There's no, there's no uh, uh, depth here to this 
that you could not pick up nuggets on the ground yourself. So uh, I'm not here to say that I'm going to give you necessarily a unique insight, but I do want to reinforce in your own mind and hearts what you already know. There are two examples that I can think of and uh, that came to my mind of how deceitful we can be and how deceitful our own hearts can be with respect to our own interests and the way things are. The first is a historical uh, example, and that has to do at the end of World War II when uh, Stalin and FDR and Churchill met at Yalta. And what is interesting, according to historians, is that FDR was taken in by Stalin. He agreed to things and overlooked things that he should not have. And it changed the course of history following that conference. We know how the Eastern Europe, within five years, came under the dominion of the Soviet Union. And this kicked off the Cold War, which is, was an extraordinary period in our history. I think sometimes some of us wish that we would go back to that time because we have so much strife and confusion and uh, uh, war as terrorism that we would almost welcome a little standoff between world powers. But nonetheless, there is where deception and human sinfulness works, if you will, uh, on a uh, highly political and geopolitical level. There's another example that I want to give you, and I doubt if any of you uh, remember this. And uh, I only remember sketches of it, but a number of years ago, a woman by the name of Bishop, she was a professor. She got her PhD from Harvard, and um, she founded herself in a university in Alabama, I believe in Huntsville, where she had gone up for tenure. Now, tenure is a very important thing to a professor. It means that you have job security and you can just say about anything you want and do about anything you want and not get fired. That's what tenure means. Uh, Nonetheless, she was denied tenure. She was denied tenure. And um, so her last year was spent in the university knowing that she would be terminated In her department faculty meeting, her very last one, and she didn't have to be there because nothing was of interest to her, she showed up and she sat there quietly all through uh, the meeting. And toward the end, she got up and pulled out a nine millimeter gun and shot to death three people that had denied her tenure. And another woman who was supposedly her friend but didn't vote for She tried to kill and pull the trigger on, but the gun jammed. She fled with her husband's help, by the way. Now, what is striking about that is the depth of the depravity. We think it is only with troubled young people at a certain age. Now, it had been discovered, though, that in their youth, it was covered up probably because she was a woman. It was covered up that she had killed her brother. Now you say, Pastor, that's an extreme example. I admit it's an extreme example. But I want to show you the depth of human depravity that is at work in the world. 
And yet every time something comes up that illustrates this, we are utterly shocked and taken back, aren't we? I am. I'm sure you are too. I'm absolutely astounded at the depth of wickedness that we saw in Newtown. But we should not forget the human condition. Christians above everyone else should not forget the human condition. The heart is deceitful above all things, says the prophet. Who can know it? Who can know it? Paul in Romans chapter 1 catalogs, if you will, a list of sins that are general. And when you get through reading that list of sins, you almost want to go to the shower and and, uh, shower off. But it is the way the world works. It is the way the world is. And therefore, the prophet's conclusion, as it is throughout the scriptures, be careful where you place your trust. Be careful. He even goes on and says it in a much more dramatic way than I just said it there. And he says in chapter 17, verse 5, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. But now we we are in a conundrum here. Am I to go around and just be mistrustful toward everyone? No, a certain amount of trust is necessary for human relationships. A certain amount of trust is necessary to conclude contracts and to conduct business. So we obviously know that trust is necessary to get along in life. In fact, a person who mistrusts everyone probably has some kind of personal personality disorder. We we must learn, in some sense, in a healthy way to trust each other. So what is the prophet saying? What he really is talking about is that you must not irrevocably and ultimately push your trust in anything that partakes of the sinful world. Your trust always must be qualified. And those who don't qualify their trust are always disappointed in life, aren't they? They run around, so-and-so let me down, so-and-so let me down, so-and-so let me down. I didn't expect that out of that person. They always seem to be disillusioned then when people and governments don't come through with their promises or at business. How many 55-year-olds have discovered in the last few years how unstable the job place is? It's just the way it is. And so we must be quite reserved in how we place our trust. But remember, it is necessary to human relations. We must have some kind of basic trust to be able to relate even to our own children and to our own families and so forth. And that is healthy and that is good. But that is not where I put my ultimate trust. Notice, there is a trend in the modern world, and the modern world is a place where some sociologists have described it as a place where there is disengagement. If there is one word that describes the modern world, some would say, it is the word disengagement. We have at times become wary, 
and suspicious, and we are disengaged, we also are self-interested. Now, what is this disengagement about? The reason that we can't trust people is because people have a difficult time committing. Commitment. Jeremiah knew that in his day. Look at his history. His very friends put him in the stocks at one time. Things turn, things change. And he was persecuted, even by those that he knew and grew up with. And so therefore, if you will, he speaks from his heart. What then are you to trust? Well, let me remind you that we are to put our full and unqualified trust in the Lord. This is an anchor to our soul. If I am to trust you, I will trust you best if I learn to put my unqualified trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I am to see things the way they are, I'm to put my whole trust in the Lord. And that's what Jeremiah is saying here. He was accused, by the way, of treason. What a charge against him. He was accused of treason because he spoke the word of the Lord. But Jeremiah in his own life came to the place where he could only trust in the Lord and no one else. I want you to look at verse 7, for instance. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. This verse is not unique to Jeremiah, and it is not unique in the Bible. The book of Proverbs says in those famous, most famous passage, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Why then can you only trust in the Lord? Let me, let me give you some reasons for this. Let me give you some reasons why. First of all, the prophet says that trust in human beings, which is necessary under certain conditions, must never be ultimate and must never be unqualified because all human relations are like a bush out in the desert with no water. But he says, trust in the Lord is like a tree planted by the streams. And here he is, he is invoking the imagery of Psalm 1. And it gets water. The Lord is the source of life and he is faithful toward us. He is like water. Trusting in him means that you will prosper and you will grow. Not in the way that the world gauges prosperity. We must always be careful about that. But in your life and in your relationships. And so therefore, trust in the Lord bears fruit in your life like nothing else can give. The Lord alone can give life. You know, I find it interesting that when uh, scientists and others who are interested in space, usually physicists, that they always want to find place where there is water so that there's a possibility of life. Have you ever noticed that? They'll go to Mars and look to see if there's any water and other places. One of the first things they look for is a sign of water because it means life. God himself and trust in him is a source of that water which prospers your life. Now, let me also remind you of something else why you should put your trust in the Lord alone. The best intentions sometimes fail the best promises from our human compatriots sometimes fail us, but the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. 
The second thing I want to say is to evoke an ancient philosopher who reminds us the way the world works. Have you ever heard of the philosopher Heraclitus? He actually lived at about the same time of Jeremiah. Now, I have mentioned him before, but some of you probably have not heard this. But Heraclitus was a famous Greek philosopher before Socrates. He is what is called a pre-Socratic. And this philosopher who lived a long time ago did not leave us very much to read about him. I think there are 149 fragments, little fragments. I have read his entire copus, all that's left. You can read it in about 20 minutes. Just read through those fragments. And he says some very cryptic things along the way, so scholars have had to guess what his real philosophy was. But there's an interesting, interesting few uh, verses of, of those fragments. And one of them has to do when he says that all is change. Everything is transitory. And according to tradition, he, ar he arrived at this conclusion. One day he walks down to the river and he puts his foot into the water and pulls it out. And I can just see him now putting it in again. He had a thought and leaves it there and pulls it out. He's swept up by the situation and I think he probably does it a third time and a fourth time. And then he realizes that he's just discovered a universal principle. Everything is in a state of flux, for you cannot put your foot in the river in the same place twice. No matter how hard you try, everything is changing. One of the most intriguing things we've discovered in the modern world is how the crust of our earth and the seas and everything is changing all the time in our entire cosmos. And so the Greeks began to look for some place where they could find some stability. And when the philosopher Plato came along, he talked about another realm, another sphere, where goodness dwelt and truth dwelt and happiness dwelt and it never changed. It's called Plato's heaven. Now, we're not Platonists, but what we are is believers in the true and the living God. And the scriptures remind us over and over again the reason we cannot unqualifiedly place our trust in any human institution or any individual without qualification is because, number one, of sinfulness. And number two, the powerlessness to carry things off. We live in a world where everything is changing. But there is one place and one being who never changes and who has our good always at interest, and that is the living God. So Jeremiah, who was abused, who was mistreated, who was persecuted, his earthly life was one of misery. He made a decision as a young man not to marry because the times were too difficult. And he didn't want to bring a wife into his life and this situation. So he did not marry, even though it was required normally of those in a priestly family to marry. He is the one, more than any other prophet, who points us, if you will, in the Old Testament to the living God. 
And he tells us, trust in the Lord. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And cursed is he who trusts in man. If you trust in the Lord, he will be like a bush, a a tree in the desert. And it will receive its water. Jesus met a woman from Samaria. I think you know the story, don't you? And he met this woman at the well of Jacob. And he met her there. And he began to tell her things through questioning. And she puzzles and and essentially says, who are you? And he says to her, If you believe in me, it will be like springs of water welling up in you to eternal life. Jeremiah's words point to Jesus, who is the water of God, and it is in him that we are unqualifiedly to place our trust. Let me ask you a rhetorical question for you to answer in your own heart. Have you unqualifiedly placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is the only Savior spoken of in the scriptures? Have you drunk freely of the water of life? And you know that in him that you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. And that you can put your trust in him. Have you come to the place in your life where you can say without reservation... And answer the question that Peter had to answer when Jesus said to him, Whom do men say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you come to that sharp place in your life where you know that your trust and your confidence is supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will, who is the water of God? Trust in him, and you will never be put to shame. Amen.